Hello and welcome to our viewers on CruxInvestor.com and also to our listeners on CruxCast, our podcast series. And for those of you who are new to Crux Investor, please click the button in the corner of the screen to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Today we're talking to Mike Young, he's the CEO of Vimy Resources. We're going to talk about a variety of topics including contract versus spot price, get an update on his Mulga Rock and Alligator River projects. We're talking about, of course, 232 and a variety of other subjects. If you want to take a look at the description below the video, there are timestamps. If you click those and go to the relevant bit of the video, so you don't have to listen to the whole thing in one go. Here we go. Mike, how are you? Very well. Thank you for having me on again. Yeah, no problem. It's good, good to speak to you. So um, I'm trying to work out whether much has happened or not a lot has happened since we last spoke. <laughs> uh, I guess a lot and lots happened. We have raised some money, which is good. And we're planning for the drilling up an Alligator River. Yeah. Uh, but I think, um, as we talked about pre-interview, the, uh, the Section 232. Well, let's is- talk about all of the above, okay? So um, let's first, of all, first things first, you did raise, I think, was it about 1.8 million Aussie? That's correct. Right. Yeah. So, so why did you do that? Uh, so we needed to top up our working capital. Uh, it was coming down towards the end of the financial year. Uh, we had a remaining capacity of about 37 million shares, which we used up. Um, that has brought on some new people to the register, a few uh, new uranium-specific investors that we were really pleased with, some of whom uh, your listeners would know. Uh, and then we had some really good support from our existing shareholders as well. Um, as I say, it was 1.8 because of the remaining capacity. Now the ASX says I'm not allowed to say it was oversubscribed, so I won't. Don't say that. Um, so, no, so, t- that. so tell me, what's the use of proceeds there? I mean, what's going to be useful? Because, and, and the reason I ask is obviously when we spoke last, we recognised the fact that some of the smaller companies would, you know, depending on the outcome of 232, which we'll talk about in a minute, may need to kind of top up, just kind of keep the lights on, keep, keep things moving along. You've, you have a, a DFS, which I think you were going to revisit. Um, you're obviously continuing to do work on Alligator River. Um, but you've got a bunch of overheads as well. You know, I think some people are talking about, you know, you know, salaries and overheads and GNA. And, you know, what have you been doing about that? Yep. So I'll, I'll discuss all those. So obviously, the Alligator River is our main project that we're we're doing field work on. So right. just so your listeners are uh, left with no doubt, Mulga Rock remains our premier project. It's a big project, three and a half million pounds a year. Um, you know, it needs, uh, I've said before, $55 plus uh, price to work. And we need the market to come up to meet that. Um, we did a DFS on that. The DFS was completed over 18 months ago, and so we necessarily have to reset some of the figures in it moving forward. So we're, we're doing a refresh study on that to look at the areas of the DFS that may need to be recalculated. Now, there will be no new engineering. The plan that we want to use to mine it and to uh, to uh, treat the ore will not change. It's just looking at, you know, have, have costs for human capital gone up, have costs for machinery gone up or down. Uh, and in the discussion I had this morning with with an engineering company that helped us in one of the phases, they said they really have not seen uh, prices move very much, even though we're in a, a mini iron ore boom at the moment. It's not like the last boom where, where um, wages got out of control. 
Um, you know, our second project where we are doing field activities is Alligator River. We want to do some drilling up there. Uh, we're waiting for another company to finish with their diamond rig so we can bring it over um, to Alligator River and do some holes in both uh, uh, Angularly and Suchwa. And we're, I'm just I'm absolutely pumped. I hope I can get up there while the rig's on site to see the core come out, but I'm really pumped about uh, drilling such well. Do you wanna... And then you asked the question about the overhead. Sorry, just gonna grab some yeah, water. Why don't you do that? Don't wanna lose you mid-interview. Uh, <laughs> it is the afternoon here. So is this really water? Yes, it is. Um, so <laughs> what, um, you know, funny story, right? It's Canada Day today. And the first prime minister of Canada, Sir John A. Macdonald, gave a very passionate speech one time about the Intercontinental Railway. And he spoke for quite some time. And as he was speaking, he was drinking quite a bit of water and it turned out it was actually gin. So it's always, you know, I'm very proud of that as a Canadian. Okay, um, I, I, but that, I, I, that is water. But, you know, with the Section 232, sometimes I feel like having gin. Anyway, what was the next question? The next question was, well, I think you're just going to tell us about some of the work going on at Alligator River and maybe give us a sense of out of the 1.8, how much is going on to the projects so how much is being spent refreshing dfs uh, at mulga rock how much are you going to be spending on alligator river you know moving forward over, over whatever period you, you've defined the 1.8 to be used against yeah the alligator river budget is uh, about the same as it was last year it's a shade under two million we've we've already spent some of that we've had heritage surveys uh, aboriginal meetings on site we have we have payments rents and rates uh, payments to the Aboriginal people. So so we've started to eat into that budget a bit. Um, so we will, this year again, because of, you know, the market situation and cash situation, it will be a small program, uh, but it won't, it won't go over $2 million for the entire field season. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing about Alligator River, though, is that we don't have the luxury of, of waiting for the market to improve and raising money at a later time um, because of the wet season. So once October hits, you're pretty well packing the camp up, um, getting it... Uh, you know, uh, cyclone proofed, um, putting everything away, and then you wait until you come back in the following May. So because of that, um, we we do do want to do some field work. The guys are up there doing uh, ground geophysics. They're doing ground sampling, but you know we want to poke some holes into those targets, and that's something we'll do this year. Um, and and we'll, we do that in response to how much money we've got. So we are one thing I I'm really proud about the guys is just they spend money. Um, very wisely on that Alligator River project, and we get a lot of um, information for the spending. So, you, circa two million on, on Alligator River. How much cash have you got? Before, did you have before the raise? If you had gone through our last uh, quarterly report, um, the cash position would have been uh, about uh, one point two, one point three. So, together with the raise, we're at about three million now. Right, and that's and that's easy through till when? Do you think? I mean, are you going to have to go out, back oh, out to right. market? into some point before Christmas. I mean, you know, you don't have to be Einstein to figure out we'll have to tap the market again at some point. But, you know, the thinking is that after the 232, we should see some some uh, positive sentiment in the market and it won't be as diluted, a dilutionary. I mean, it's a necessary evil of any company um, yeah. in the phase that we're in. For sure, know, for you, sure. You just have to, um, you, you got two choices, right? You can pack up and do nothing and have, you know, two people in the office waiting for the market to improve, in which case you're burning money and doing absolutely nothing. Um, or you can at least try and put some money into the ground, um, any other activities, which is what we do. Yeah, but let, let us come on to that in a second. I just want to finish off on, on, on the reason for this raise and also something I, I touched on earlier, which was, you know, you've got people saying, 
And I guess it refers to what you also just said, which is, you know, in terms of the overhead right now, salaries, you know, the, 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 the headquarters, the GNA in the field, etc. I mean, have you felt the need to do anything about that in terms of reducing the cost while you are in this kind of period? Not, not pack up the bags and go home, but how, how do you kind of keep, keep things moving forward and look at your overheads? Yeah, it's a good question. It's one we get a lot. And um, one of the things we did do is when the DFS was finished, uh, Tony Chamberlain, who was our COO, uh, he left the company and we didn't replace that position. We don't need to at the moment. He stayed on the board. So we have the continuity of the intellectual property, if you like. Um, and, and then two people that we have on staff, Julian Tapp and Scott Hyman, um, people do ask about uh, the number of people we do have. And one of the things about uranium, uh, particularly in Western Australia with the approvals process, um, we wouldn't need Scott, who's the uranium marketing guy in the States, and we wouldn't need Julian if we were doing, say, gold or salt or lithium. So Julian manages, uh, manages the approvals, and he also does uh, uranium market economics. And I'll come back to that because he's part of the WNA uh, working group and uh, on supply demand. And that's going to be a major catalyst when the new fuel report comes out. So let's come back to that in a little bit. Um, and Julian's only working for us part-time and Scott in the States, America is our number one market. It's the biggest free market for uranium there is. He's done a, a mountain of work um, getting in front of the utilities, uh, understanding, uh, for example, can we sell all of our offtake into American uh, markets? And if not, where else can we sell it? And if so, who are we going to sell it to? So Scott's you know, prepared the groundwork for when the market comes up again. And I think this is really important um, and, and I learned this in iron ore, when this market switches, and it will switch quickly, the utilities will jump back in very fast and they'll be competing with one another. If you haven't done your homework, if you haven't done the groundwork, if you haven't been in front of them, and you're not the first person they think about when they're topping up their portfolios with that, that junior section, I think we talked about last yeah, time, yeah. you've lost, right? You've lost, you've missed it. And the way the contracting works is they happen in cycles. And when the contracting window closes, it's closed again and you're at the vagaries of the spot market and we know what i think of the spot market so we we believe that what we've done is um set the company up very very well for when the market opens up if we had not had these guys on staff and had just been ticking along and it had been me traveling to america to try and talk to the utilities the outcome the future outcome would be much worse right okay now most of us have also gone on to part-time. So we recognize that we need to watch our dollars. So Julian works, um, I think two days a week. I'm working four days a week. Our CFO is working four days a week. So we took a decision rather than letting um, more people go that we would work part-time and lose a position through that process. So we've done what we can, but but with keeping an eye on the strategic outcome that we, we need to have. So, I mean, that's, that interests me. So you, you've said you've gone down to a four day week. Yep. Okay, and and a pro rata the salary accordingly, presumably as well. Correct. Yeah. Okay, and I'm always interested with junior companies when executives pay themselves big salaries but don't take big equity positions instead. You know, in terms of the remuneration, you do see a lot. I mean, how, how have you guys done that? Are you saying I'm going to I don't mind taking less cash because I think I can create something great here. I'm going to take a you know my, my significant portion of my uh, remuneration and shares. I mean, how have you guys structured that? 
That's a good question. Um, and oddly enough, uh, when the notice of meeting for the EGM comes out, which we'll be having shortly, um, that very question will be addressed. And that's really all I can say. Okay, so you've thought about it. It's something you're addressing. Okay, Let, let's see what and happens. And it needs shareholder approval. So it's something that we're doing and it needs shareholder approval. Okay, fair enough. Let's let's step back. We'll wait till you know that uh, meeting happens, and we'll see see what comes out of that. I'll, we can pick up on it next time we talk. Um, let me talk to you about strategy because I'm again I'm fascinated with juniors. You know the mentality because you know we recently looked at five different gold companies in West Africa, three different sets of strategies there, and they've all played out differently. So for, for you, Junior, uranium space, the vagaries of the market, you've, you know, the, uh, it's, it's a very erratic um, uh, space. Um, what's your view? You're going to have to go back to the market at the end of this year, right, for some more cash. Are you going to just take, are you going to go big and get it while you can? Or are you going to take it in small increments and minimize the dilutionary component? Because Again, different people have different views on that. What's what's your take? Oh, look, it'll depend on on where the share price goes. So I honest, like I strongly believe that the two three two is going to be a catalyst. I think um, when the fuel report comes out from the WNA, you're going to have another catalyst. I think that the center of the market uh, will change drastically. We're seeing. I don't know where the spot price is going to go. I I've given up trying to predict it because, as we know, it's not a it's not a free the spot price isn't a free market anyway so god knows where it's going to go but it's going to go up whether it's dragged up by speculation or whether it's dragged up by midterm contracts i i i couldn't say my view is that um you will see utilities start coming to the term market and if you've got buyers on the buy side of that spot market then the price will go up so i think that combined with with uh, an outcome on section 232 which i've always said will be good or gooder which is a reference to dumb and dumber, by the way, just in case, you know, everyone gets that one. Um, so I think the outcome will be that with certainty from the 232 decision, you will see the market open up again. The utilities have absolutely been frozen out. They have just, they have just shut up shop in America because of 232. And once, sure. once there's a decision. But, 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 what, but what's down. your decision? I'm, I, the market's the market. What, yeah. what is your decision going to be in terms of how you take money going forward? You can take all the money you need for the next couple of years in one go because it's there. And let's face it: if, if you think the way this is going to this is going to go oh, the way, if it's it there, is, you take it. You right? take it. Every right. every chairman of every company I've ever worked for has always said: if it's there, you take it. Right. You okay. Get the money. Well. What you're saying with that strategy, it's slightly more dilutory initially, but in the scheme of where you think this thing's going, it's going to be a safer better, more sensible bet to just take it while it's there than do lots of small incremental, less dilutory raises? Well, they're less dilutory in the, in the small term, but if you do more of them, you get the same outcome. So, you know, it, you, you, you make those calls as a judgment when, when, when and, it, and, it, and at the time you, you do the raise, you assess all those things. Now, one of the things I'd like to look at in the next raise is looking after our existing shareholders. So there's lots of options there. There's, you know, there's, there's, uh, you can do uh, uh, rights issues or you can do share purchase plans or, you know, whether it's underwritten or not underwritten, you know, there's lots of different ways of looking at it. Um, but one thing I want to do is make sure that our existing shareholders, particularly in the smaller retail side, um, get looked after because they have been very supportive. Um, you know, 
particularly on the with the Morgan's uh, stockbroking uh, network, you know, they've been they've been very supportive and very patient, um, you know, and they understand the uranium thesis, uh, particularly with what what's coming up, the catalyst coming up. So we you know we we want to look after them as well. So. You know, there's a lot of competing interests because you also have a, new, a lot of new players. So as we're already seeing, we're seeing new investors come into the space, people I've not heard of before phoning us up out of the blue. You know, the one thing that really flushes a lot of people out is when you go into a trading hall, suddenly the phones start ringing, you know, can I be involved? And we had a lot of that. But, you know, so there's people um, who have been following the story uh, and they, they're phoning, you know, we're seeing a lot more of it. So you can see that there's a thaw in the sector. You can see that people are starting to get into it. You know, the yellow cakes and those guys are catalyzing more and more interest in, in the in the investment side of things. So, right. uh, as I said, you know, we had good response to this one. Uh, we were limited by our placement capacity. We're going to correct that, uh, uh, and then and then we'll move it forward. Okay. Okay. So, lots of new equity type investors coming to the party, or certainly having conversations about coming to the party. Um, again, depending on what happens in the market, I'm, I'm sure. And I do want to come back to 232, so, which I apologize for in advance. But just finish off on this financing component. Okay, at what point do banks get involved? How many contracts do you need to have in place? How, and to what value? Because obviously you're a small player, you can have lots of small contracts with different utility providers in the States or wherever. Um, at what point do the banks say to you, okay, I feel comfortable bringing some kind of debt component to what you're trying to do here? Yeah, um, we've done a lot of work on that. Um, those are commercially inconstant discussions that we've got. Uh, so what I can say is that a, a good majority of the offtake will need to be contracted. Uh, I think I have said as much as 75% uh, in the public domain, so I can repeat that. But as for the numbers, um, we, we're not going to talk about that. That's obviously commercial, but we have uh, talked to banks and, and we, we do have a plan on that. So we have an idea of what pricing we need, um, the percentage of contracts that we need. And, and it's one of the reasons that we concentrate on America is the fact that with American utilities, you have low counterparty risk and it's a third of the market. Well, under a th just under a third of the market. So mm -hmm. that's why we've got a guide in America for that exact reason is that the American utilities will definitely be our base load in terms of getting getting financing. But obviously banks don't know much about mine. Well, some know more than others, but compared to you, they don't know very much. So what what sort of margins are they do they need from you to be able to get comfortable around any kind of debt provision? Look, we've had preliminary discussions. We haven't gotten into that amount of detail. It's kind of a chicken and an egg question. But what I can tell you is that the banks that we are talking to understand uranium very very well okay okay so there's a bit of a bit of parlez vous francais going on <laughs> okay um okay so let's so let's again so i'm just asking questions you know which are a little bit more involved than we had last time because i think you've helped people move their understanding on a little bit and certainly conversations we've had with other uranium companies too so just on, just want your view on contract and, and spot. You, you've told us your your view on spot. It might be worth reiterating again in terms of, but there's no real such thing as a free, free market in, in spot, which which it should be. Um, so can you can you explain to us why? Oh, sorry, are utilities currently loading up with cheap 
spot price product, or are they just, or are they not buying? I mean, what, what, what are they actually doing at the moment? Because they're not doing contracts. No, there's very little action in the spot market from utilities. So I was looking at the trade tech report um, from the weekend. And when you look at it, it's intermediaries and traders. And then there's a few few producers. So that'll be some of the American, well, one of two American producers. And then there was a utility at the bottom. It was a very small amount of it. And, and the spot market as an overall, um, on a monthly basis, the overall uh, tonnage that goes through the spot market and really the only tons going through that market are, are the ones that utilities are buying because the other tons are being traded from trader to trader, right? So when you when you see a report on the tons that have gone through the spot market, you're seeing a lot of churn. Right. Okay. You're, you're seeing so each sale that happens is accumulated as part of the spot market. But if I sell you a piece of uranium and you sell it back to me, that's that's double counting, and that happens a lot. So the spot market is very frequently traded. So this, and as I said before, there's there's no clearinghouse, right? So the price mechanism that you see is reported voluntarily. So it's not a true market. It's an it's an arbitrage floor price is what it is. Got it. Now on the contract side, there's just no contracting. There was one RFP in in the entire in the entire time of the Section 232, um, certainly from when it went to the Commerce Department, um, there were probably only two or three RFPs. And they were they were for a small amount of, of material. Right. So there's basically not enough product on market for utilities to kind of load up cheaply. Um, and what what tonnage there is is sort of just being recycled through the market and people making some sort of arbitrage. By and large, yeah. So we saw right. that we saw that late last calendar year when, when Cameco said they were gonna come into the market, we saw the price almost hit it almost hit thirty. Mm. Um, and and the expectation that Canada was just going to wade into the market and eventuate and like a it's pretty much like a share yeah. in a company yeah. when you've got nothing on the buy side it dwindles again and that's what's happened you know people quitting positions so you know it's not a true reflection it's not the, the, the spot market does not reflect what's actually actually happening in the real right. world and what about so can, do Camaco have contracts to fulfill themselves <laughs> and are they yeah they do. It? They've got about 18 to 19 million, million tons of contracts to fill. Right. So um, they're managing their own stockpiles. They've still got some stocks. And then, you know, you have to ask the chemical guys because, you know, people from outside looking in, uh, you know, we don't know what their strategy is. Right. Um, so we, we, we could speculate. I don't want to. Um, you know, Tim's pretty open when he does his uh, quarterly reports. Uh, but at some point, you know, they're either going to have to turn MacArthur back on or buy more on the spot market. With the contract, in the contract space, um, these co these contracts are at set prices. Yeah. So Cameco has got a, or people yeah. like Cameco, have got yeah. contracts in place with the utility at set prices. And they're not filling them now because it's too expensive to produce. They've shut down some of their assets. Um, and they're unable to fulfill this. So are they obliged to do so within a certain time frame? Do they get penalties if they don't? Oh, well, will still be. Well, I don't know the contract. Uh, I don't know the contract uh, 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 terms, but um, uh, Cameco, Cameco is quite open about how much they've paid. I think, you know, contracts can be, that's the thing about this industry is the contracts are all private, but they can be, you know, floor and ceilings. They can be collars. They can be, uh, base escalated, they can be related to the spot price. So there's lots of different contracts. Mm. So chemical, obviously, um, the contracts that they have 
uh, I assume it related to the spot price because as the spot price fell, they closed MacArthur. If they had a fixed floor, um, like the one they had with TEPCO, um, they would have left MacArthur open. So, you know, our contracts will be a floor price. They have to be. We 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 need to baseline. We need to baseload our our contracts with a floor price, um, and you know that floor price needs to be, as I've said in the past, fifty five or higher. Now, I think when you look at when we will be in production, which would be twenty twenty two or twenty twenty three, there's every possibility that contracts at that price will be being um, being filled. Right. There's no doubt. Okay. Otherwise, as we know, the world runs out of uranium just because of the marginal cost of production. Right. Okay. Okay. Well, look, let, let's quickly skirt skirt around T three T because I want your opinion. Okay. Um, everyone knows fourteenth of July. It's the big day supposedly when something's got to be announced, or there's a hundred and eighty day extension to allow them to um, negotiate trade terms with 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 interested parties is what i'm reading what, what's your take on 232 timing and uh... our understanding is that a decision has to come out on by july 14th so we've heard that you know it could be delayed trump could make you know a different decision sorry the president could make a different decision um our view is that he 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 won't uh, what happened with automobiles was that he made, there was a decision at the, t at the, t at the time uh, that he had to make a decision, but the implementation was delayed. Mm. So that was, that was in the automobiles, for example. So I think you've got to remember that the American utilities put together a, a group called AHUG uh, to lobby uh, for their yeah. side of things. And they will be telling the president and his administration that look, we can wait a little while longer, but we can't wait much longer to start writing contracts because by, by 2021, 2022, we're 60% uncovered and we should be writing these contracts today. So I think there'll be pressure for him to make a decision. It's the same as the two petitioners. They're going to want to spend, you know, if the decision goes the way uh, they hope it will, um, then they're going to want to spend capital and raise money to, to expand their operations. Um, so, you know, you've got a lot of people waiting. So my view is that I don't think they're gonna they're gonna stop around and do another 180 days. I just that's not my view. My view is that it's going to be, um, it's not going to be a 25% quota. We saw that news release from Bloomberg on the 21st of June. Um, that was obviously uh, that's an old political uh, uh, trick called floating a balloon, right? You just leak a bit into the press and see how everyone reacts. And then you use that as a way of saying, okay, well, here's the best decision. And I, I ask, absolutely believe that the administration and the DOC um, put that information into the marketplace to see how the utilities would react and how the petitioners would react. And not so much the market. I don't think they're that elegant. But um, you know, that was definitely a way of floating the balloon up. And there was there was uh, one of the things I said was it would be five percent and then go up five percent every year to twenty five percent. But I think that was met with. Uh, um, a lot of, uh, uh, well, AHUG wasn't very happy about it. And you've got to remember there's, a, there's probably two orders of magnitude of people working for the utilities and there is work for the miners. So, you know, I don't envy the decision because you've got to balance both these, these competing forces, but, you know. No, no, that's, that, that, that's, that, that's a really interesting, interesting view. I mean, another interesting view, which you put forward when we spoke last time, you know, I asked the question, did you feel that 
this was a national security issue. And I've asked a bunch of CEOs in the uranium space whether the, how they felt. And it, it falls very clearly into two camps. The American companies, all of them, and American fund managers, all of them, it's a national security issue. Everyone outside of the US, not so much. And I just thought that was, that was interesting in terms of the this, this psyche here. Not necessarily because of the, the story that was being, that being pitched, but I think people truly, truly believe it on both sides. And I just thought that was, that was kind of interesting reflection of the societies that we're, 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 we're dealing with there. I mean, do you, I mean have you, has your position changed? There's a bias about, about you will always be biased towards the outcome that you hope you're going to get. And so, you know, on the American side, of course, the two petitioners um, are going to say it's a national security issue. But Mike, so did other uh, American players. It wasn't just... What's the issue? What's the national security issue? I think, I guess it's around the nuclear fleet, people are arguing. You know, they've got a very large nuclear fleet, which they they want to be uh, reliant on people outside of the country to supply the energy source for that, um, was the, the key so driver. Have, but, so why not have a 100% quota then? I mean, so if there's, a, if there's a national security issue, then you should be getting all your uranium from America, right? If there's truly a national security issue and, and you need to make sure that if there's a problem, you have all the uranium you could possibly use, shut the mines down until you need it. Right. That to me, that's just a perky. Right. That's just that's just something that was retrofitted. Right. We had two companies who couldn't compete. The utilities didn't want to write the contracts that they needed, and they 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 found some loophole in the law under Section 232, and they initiated that that uh, investigation, hoping utilities would come to the table and write some contracts with them. But once it got into the Commerce Department, they lost control of it. They had to back in behind it. Um, but I, but I, but it's not just you. It, I think there are you know quite a few people in the same uh, same boat. Um, you know, my initial reaction was it was a, a a commercial means and very brave one, and you know I do admire it um, to put forward the petition. But as Dustin Garrow said when I spoke to him, the ex Paladin um, director, he his view was that it was something which you know they, they felt was a, a good commercial decision but it's actually frozen the market and in retrospect it's it killed the momentum which was building up prior to that and maybe we would have been better my interpretation of what he's saying was it maybe it would have been better not to have done that and perhaps the market would be flowing and running including you know for the benefit of everyone including those two companies what do you think oh i agree i agree with that wholeheartedly but i think when the guys went into this, um, UR and Energy Fuels went into this, I, I, I really don't think they realized they were taking a tiger by the tail. I really thought, I really think, and uh, you know, it's, a, it's a, an informed opinion. I think that they were hoping that at some point utilities would come to the party and, and basically um, write contracts that were sustainable for these guys. I mean, if it is a national security issue, they shouldn't be buying spot material from overseas and selling it into the domestic market but you know they're running a business i get that right and if i was living in the states as passionate and one-eyed as i am i'd probably be on side <laughs> well but i'm not I mean, well yeah. they, 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 there you go and i think i think that one will run and run but um i guess when the when the price comes back and people but get interestingly, produced interestingly one thing I, sorry one thing i will say 
Um, we've just seen that up in G20, uh, Prime Minister Morrison, who's just been reelected, met with uh, President Trump. And what was interesting is that uh, President Trump and Scott Morrison's team, they had a dinner together, just the two of them, well, plus all their, all their you know, uh, advisors. And what I read in the paper is that the president got off his plane and within 20 minutes was having dinner with, president, uh, with uh, Prime Minister uh, Morrison. And one of the first questions he said was, how did you do it? How did you win the election? So President Trump has uh, uh, admiration for Scott Morrison. He's a conservative. He won the un unwinnable election. Um, you know, there's a lot of parallels be between him and Trump in, ter in terms of winning that election that everyone thought they would lose. Um, you know, the same sort of leftist nonsense in the press saying they were going to lose and they still won. So there's, there's a bond between them that just doesn't exist with, say, Trudeau or some of the other countries. And so my hope, and it's only a hope and speculation, is that that will stand us in good stead for whatever the outcome of the two through two is. Um, but again, it, 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 and I think um, my, my colleague, uh, Brennan Munro put it best. He just said, you know, at the end of the day, the president makes the decision and it, it could be anything. We could be, we could be told we have to mine uranium on the moon, who knows? <laughs> there you go, we, we, we do have a space, we do have a space force now, so maybe. Um, so, so let, let's move on to the WNA, the, the symposium in London. You talked about a fuel report. Are you seeing that fuel report as a catalyst for change as well? Because obviously you had one in April, uh, somewhere near, was it Spain, the last one? Uh, that was in uh, June, yeah, I did, in Lisbon. Lisbon, Portugal, sorry, okay. Um, you mentioned it earlier, the fuel report. What's going to change now versus back in June? So the fuel report comes out every two years, uh, done by the WNA. It's uh, it's a, a, a seminal bit of work. Uh, so the WNA is really the go-to source for a lot of analysts in terms of the number of reactors there are, demand going forward. Um, most times when you see an analyst report, they'll be referencing WNA. They may be referencing one of the other analysts, but ultimately um, everyone looks at that website as the, the oracle. Um, what's happened in the last two years is that the, the demand and uh, supply, the supply and demand working group, the makeup of it has changed. Uh, Julian Tapp, who works for us, has joined that group. Uh, Brandon Munro from Bannerman is a co-chair. Um, and so what's happened is, is and, and Olga, who runs it from within the WNA, have fundamentally changed uh, the way that they look at uh, supply and demand. And, and what I can say is that uh, the makeup of the committee has moved towards what I would say is a more commercial um, way of looking at the supply and demand, particularly on, on uh, the supply side. And so I can't really say any more because Julian doesn't talk to me about it, which is which is quite right. But what what I think is that that report is going to be what I call a slow burn catalyst because as people start to um, work through that report and look at the supply demand economic going forward, um, basically they're going to see that the the uh, uh, I guess avalanche of uranium that people imagined would be coming with a price increase probably won't be there and that that we are heading towards a systemic shortage right okay so, well that's gonna be fascinating we're actually talking with um julian tomorrow so i guess i'll get some of that or none of that from him um but it'd be interesting to sort of see what you know at least how they're approaching it 
Um, but, but to that point, if, if I look at what's going on out there, the, the French are extent that, you know, they were getting rid of nuclear. Now they're extending the, the, the life of some of the uh, reactors there by 10 years. You've got China bringing on um, online uh, Taishan one and two. You've got India with the world's largest reactor. You've got lots of these modular, smaller reactors. You, basically, the infrastructure around the world is being built, geared up uh, to, for nu nu nuclear power. Okay, these are usually government-led programs, and what I'm not seeing a lot of is government led pressure on the uranium market to start performing so have you seen them have you seen any pressure from governments with regards to supply because this is this this will become a national security issue for other people to the power secured that that is a really really good question and i'm going to pretend i thought of it first because i wish i had right um no no we're not um, China, however, China has gone about buying a lot of uranium. They do have large stockpiles, but that is those that's material that is earmarked for for reactors, and they have taken advantage of the low prices buying a lot of material from Kazakhstan. There's no doubt about that. And and the Chinese, I think, um, you know, certainly during uh, during the 2000s when they had massive buildup of of infrastructure, they really did get stung by the high high iron ore prices. And I think they've taken that lesson. The one thing I admire the Chinese for is that they never make the same mistake twice. And and um, for example, we saw that in Hong Kong. Um, so they are they have built up a good stockpile of uranium. There will still be a customer. They're still growing. Um, you know, nuclear power is very important to their uh, to their long term plans, particularly with with particulate pollution. Um, but not so much in other countries. I think I think other countries, particularly in America, which is still a quarter of the market, um, they believe in market dynamics. Um, so you know, and I think the utilities do understand that they're going to have to pay more to to incentivize new supply. Um, but no, there is not. There is not. It's a great question. There is not a concerted. Well, the French government has EDF, right? So EDF, although it's a, a public company, I mean they still are are quite interconnected. It's a big part of their power supply, of course. So you know, the French government will be talking to EDF and EDF, um, you know, they go out and, and they're very active in marketing at all the conferences of the big team of EDF people. So they're very uh, aware of having to get secure supply. And I think they're, they're probably um, ahead of the curve a bit. But I think it's a great question. You're certainly not seeing key stakeholders uh, getting out there ensuring that there'll be new supply. And I think they're leaving it up to the uh, market economics. Now, you know, you then say, okay, well, at what price if we start to increase um, nuclear builds and it starts to go up, say, instead of just linear 2 or 3% growth per year, it starts to grow more. It just means that the people building those ones at the back end are just going to have to pay more for uranium. And given that uranium isn't a huge part of the input cost to generating electricity, that's probably why they're not too concerned about it. I don't think the world, you know, it's the same as any commodity. If you put up price high enough, you can get it out of seawater. I don't think we'll get to that point, but I think what you'll see is 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 as we get new builds, they'll just they'll just basically depend on the market to set the price, the marginal price of production. And as 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 you know, uh, demand goes up, obviously supply goes up, and the marginal cost of production goes up. But then you've also got Kazakhstan, who you know at some point 
may want to increase production if the price is high enough and you've got um, MacArthur sitting there with, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Chemica sitting there with MacArthur River shuttered. And then down the track in the, in the late 20s, you've got um, next-gen infusion with those those um, those uh, mines as well, which will probably fill um, holes that are left behind by the cigar light closure. So, you know, it's it's if we do see new build the new builds at the level that we think are going to occur, um, you're going to see a uranium market acting pretty much like any other commodity market during a growth phase. Okay, no, it, 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 it's it's just interesting to me that um, you know we we try and do some research. I think. One delightful individual called us clueless because we haven't been in this space for the last five years. But you know, we we do try and research um, this as best we can, and the the stuff that we see out there says to us that you know the the governments within these countries aren't yet treating this seriously because maybe, as you say, they don't want to get involved with market dynamics, but because maybe it's a political um, hot potato for for, for some. Um, but at some point, it's it's going to either have to rectify itself through you know post two three two, or they are going to have to step in and get involved. Seems to me interesting point you just raised. Actually, um, you know the political hot potato. The last six months, I've been amazed at the the, the way that um, because of the the climate emergency that is now creeping into the popular lexicon. Um, people are now looking at nuclear. You know, even even with the, the mini series of Chernobyl, um, uh, people are still. You know, that's like saying you shouldn't fly because the hint blew up. But actually, I watched Chernobyl, and it was really interesting. It was um, although there were you're watching it as a person in the industry, you're going, okay, that's not quite right. That's not right. But it had more to do with the 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 then Soviet style of approaching a disaster than it had to do with with the with the technology. We know that technology doesn't exist anymore. So. That's why the Hindenburg uh, metaphor is so good. Um, but what we're seeing, you know, even even the Australian, I'm just looking around for the report. So the Australian um, industry super Australia released this report called Modernizing the Electricity Sectors. It's a hundred page report. Um, I'll make it available online with the link. Um, but in this, they're talking about nuclear power, right? This is in Australia, talking about nuclear power. Right. So it's, it's, it's quite a good report. Yeah. Um, it's very, very well written. There's some very clever people have written this, just looking at all the different power sources, um, because right now the American, uh, the the Australian uh, electricity market on the East Coast, because the West Coast is quite isolated because of distance, but the East Coast national electricity market's a, a bit of a mess. There's not much certainty. Um, a lot of companies certainly want to see certainty, and the industry super fund. Um, I think they they have about uh, three trillion dollars of investment. So. You know they're a big heavy hitter, and and what they think and what they say matters. So that was a when that came out, that that was a lot of jaw dropping down here in Australia when this came out. So I'll 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 put that. that it's a really interesting, although it's Australia specific. There are some really interesting, uh, good information in there and how they compare different uh, different electricity sources. So that that to me is a really important watershed, and I think what's going to happen is that. People who are anti-nuclear are going to find themselves on the wrong side of history at the end of the day. Well, it, it, it'll be interesting to see how it all pans out. We've only, we haven't got long. We're in July, two weeks to go apparently. Yeah. So um, it will not be dry July for me. I can tell you, it'll be champagne court. <laughs> they just have to make a decision, right? They just just do something, right? One way or the other. I, th I think you're not alone in that in that in that thought. Um, okay. Well. 
Thanks for your time, Mike. I appreciate it as always. Always entertaining uh, and insightful. Um, you know, I, I think, again, you know, we should probably catch up again when, when um, you've kind of revised the DFS on, on Mulga Rock. Uh, be great to sort of see some what, what comes out of the um, project work on Alligator River for sure. Do let us know. Oh, I'm excited about that. And I'm and I'm you know and I'm and I'm you know remembering the words you know, you want to look after existing shareholders and uh, make yeah. make it right. So you know I look forward to hearing about that as well. So thanks for your time again well, today, you. and we'll we'll speak soon. Thank you. I uh, appreciate being on. I think you're. Um, you're building up a great following. You're doing a great job. So, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to catching up. So um, hopefully we can catch up. You're in London? Absolutely. See you at the WNA. Yeah. Yeah. You absolutely need to get along to that. I think you guys should sit in on some of the sessions, particularly when the fuel report is is released. So I think uh, absolutely look into that on board. And then, um, yeah, so hopefully we'll catch up then. Thank you very much for watching our video. We do aim to give you informed and intelligent information with which to make your investment decisions. So if you liked what you just saw, please give us a thumbs up. And if you wanna see more insightful, in-depth, honest and unbiased interviews, then please click the subscribe button. So thanks again for watching and we look forward to seeing you again soon.